When I got the news uh, about Tony's brother, Carly Blake's uncle, uh, on Monday, it kind of uh, threw me for a loop, and I wasn't really sure what I was supposed to do going forward with that day. I wondered, uh, should I prepare a sermon? Should we not even have a sermon this week? Um, uh, should we do something totally different? And uh, with something so tragic happening, uh, it's not always clear what you should do. But as the week went on, I came to realize that uh, maybe the timing of this sermon on the sacraments is providentially arranged, especially because you know what we need when we face tragedy? We need grace and truth. And that's what comes to us through the sacraments. Grace and truth. That's what came through Jesus. And it extends to us through these physical, physical means and acts that he's given to us. And what happens when we face tragedy a lot of times is that it seems to rock us in a way where we don't know what's true anymore. We don't know what to believe anymore. And nothing reminds us of the truth more. Nothing grounds us in the truth and nothing transports us literally into the truth more than do the sacraments. And specifically as we talk about baptism and the Lord's Supper today. That's what we're talking about. And in these things, we come in contact with the, the physical grace, the, the grace that God gives us in our bodies. And sometimes that's just what we need, uh, is to, to encounter grace that we can't work up, we can't cause to happen on our own, and yet the Lord has deemed to meet us in these things. And so I think it may be appropriate that we're talking about these things today. And now, just... To uh, remind you, we're talking about identity and vision, who we are. Say a lot of other things. And this could be a much longer conversation. I'm going to make it very brief. And you could say, well, we're an evangelistic church. Of course, Josh told us we don't have to evangelize. So, no, I'm kidding. That's not what he said. <laughs> I appreciated what Josh had to say. I'm in agreement with him. Um, you could say we're a church that cares for the poor, and that's super important. You know, you could go down the list of these things that, that we do. Why, why are we saying these three things? It's because of something really fundamental that we need to grasp and hopefully reinforce over and over throughout time. And that is that life lived with Christ flows into everything else. So we talk about discipleship, but, but you need to make sure you hear that in the right way. It's not discipleship like I'm by myself, I see what Jesus did, now I'm going to go do that. That's a recipe for failure. What the Bible holds out for us is life given to us from above. Union with Christ in a mysterious way that we can't always comprehend, there is a, a life that is his, that is joined to ours. And out of that life, we live with Jesus. And so, so the first concern we have is not even to do what Jesus did. Our first concern is for God to do for us what we need to be done. And then from that, we seek to do what Jesus did. 
So, all that to say, these three things that we have mentioned there specifically, those are the three definitive ways the church historically has sought to live in union with Christ. This big, beautiful idea that our life can be united in some way, that real spiritual life can grow in us. How are we going to transcend the ordinary, everyday life, the self-help books that you can read? How are we going to get to that point? We're going to do it with God in union with Christ. And these are the three historic means by which the church has sought to live in union with Christ through the Word. That's, and it's represented in different churches a lot of times, but a lot of times you have a kind of narrow focus in different churches. So you have Word-centered churches, which you may call evangelical churches. And that may be more of the background of people here. Then you have more liturgical churches that are really good at the sacraments, but sometimes they leave out the Bible. And you have charismatic churches that are really good at the Spirit, but they leave out the sacraments and sometimes the Word. And, and what we want to do is say, no, we're for all three. And, and actually, the God we serve, we believe in His graciousness and His goodness that has reached people throughout history. We don't think it's just been in one narrow lane. But what has been proven historically through the three different uh, branches, you want to call it three different streams, is that God shows up in all these ways, and we want to draw from all of them. So that's why that's in our, our statement. I hope that makes sense to you, and I hope we get to reinforce it over time so that we can continue to, to grow into these things and, and live with the great saints throughout history who have uh, found these things to be sources of life, sources of knowing Christ. So when we talk about sacraments, we're talking about physical things. And we might just say that a sacrament is some kind of physical practice which is also a means of grace. But even that we need to, need to qualify, and, and the definition may not be perfect here today, but it, it's along these lines. It's a special means of grace. You know how we talked about, when we first started talking about the Lord's Supper, we talked about how um, the, the ancient world, and, and up until more recently, people thought of the world as infused with spiritual presence. And Christians understood that God's presence infused nature. In one sense, they, they understood that grace was just all around them. It's in this air that we breathe. It's in those trees. The grace that's there, right? So in one sense, creation is sacramental in that it's a means of grace. But there have always been special things that, that God set aside and said, well, I'm going to load that with extra grace. And I'm going to remind you in this sin-cursed world, I'm going to remind you of the grace that is present through these physical things. And that's what we talk about with baptism and the Lord's Supper. Now, if you know anything about other churches, the Catholics have like seven sacraments. Orthodox, Greek Orthodox have like 20-something. And I don't know what to do with all that. I'm sticking with the two that have been more universally recognized as these practices loaded with grace, bringing us into the presence of Christ, encounters with Christ. That's baptism and the Lord's Supper. And that's where we're going to focus today. I'm going to spend more time talking about baptism because we've spent six or eight weeks talking about the Lord's Supper. We probably don't need to do too much with that. And I hope you're okay with the term sacrament is something that I would like for us, if we can, to make a little bit more of a regular part of our vocabulary. And, and here's why. I think that term gets at something. You know, the, the term I grew up with was ordinance. When we talk about the Lord's Supper, it's an ordinance. Sacrament communicates something else. You see that root word? I haven't done the research here, but I think they're connected. Sacred. See, there, there's something else going on besides us keeping an ordinance. God said do it. Now, that's important. It is an ordinance. God did say do it. But it's more than that. There's grace in this. It's a special means of, of contacting God's grace. And so we don't want to think about it. This is one more thing that we do out of obedience, although it is something we do out of obedience. 
but it's a special thing. It's loaded with grace, and we come to it as a sacred thing. It is a sacrament of the presence of Christ. And it's a physical thing. See, the, the Gnosticism, the earliest Christian heresy, Gnosticism tried to deny that physical things matter. Physical creation is bad. And the church immediately recognized that's heresy. The incarnation disproves that. Jesus came and had a body, and his grace touched us physically. And he left us with important physical reminders and means of grace after that. And so the physical things matter. Our bodies matter. Do you know that our bodies matter in worship? You know, this connects with what we talked about a few weeks ago uh, when we were speaking about worship and, and forming habits. You remember that? I'm not going to go back over all that right now, but, but we talked about being loving things and not just thinking things. And so our, our, our habits are formed by, by good worship practices. We're being discipled in those kind of things. We're being formed as people, not just coming to get a message and go out and do what we can, but, but actually being formed by our habits. And, and our bodily habits are very, very important to our formation, what we do with our bodies. And that, that applies to our, our gathering for worship. Um, you know the Old Testament? The Old Testament is, is filled with these bodily practices. You just read it, you know, sacrifice this here, wear this there, put blood on this doorpost, sit, sit like this, whatever. Um, and sometimes we read that and we think, well, man, God really was an externalist in the Old Testament. Then he changed, and he became concerned with internal matters. And I don't think that's what it was. I think, I think although he's given us more freedom and hasn't specified in the same way as he did in the Old Testament, God knew that people's bodily practices mattered, and it matters to your spiritual formation. I was uh, visiting with my great uncle well, about a year ago or so, and he's since passed away. But he was telling me about, he had been, I think, in the, the Korean War, he was up in his 80s telling me this. He said when he'd been gone for months, like a year and a half or something, he'd been gone for months overseas, came back on the boat. He said when the soldiers got off that boat, every one of them dropped on their knees on the, on the ground and kissed the ground when they got back. And my uncle told me this with tears in his eyes as, as he recalled it. Now, why did he do that? Why, why, didn't, why didn't he just get off and say to himself in his head, I'm really glad to be back. You know, why didn't they all do that? What was it about that physical act that mattered so much that some 60 years later he'd be telling me about it with tears in his eyes? See, something about the, the, the physicality of it had inscribed it on his soul. And, and all of the deep thoughts and feelings that had gone, gone along with what he had, he had been through, uh, they were represented in that act, and it, was, it communicated something inside him. That, that's, that's what happens with physical things when we enact these uh, important external actions. C.S. Lewis has a, has a quote about this in his book, The Screwtape Letters. And I need to tell you about it so you understand what, what's happening. He's uh, writing from the standpoint of the devil, okay? And he's, this is how the devil thinks. The devil's talking to his nephew that he's trying to train in how to be a good demon, okay? If you don't understand that, you misunderstand the quote. So, so here's what Lewis said. The best...
You follow him? You know, it's something that we're tempted to forget. We're like, oh yeah, body doesn't matter. What we do with the body is no big deal. But actually, God is the creator of the body. And if we didn't get it the first time, he affirmed it in sending Jesus in a body. So the body matters, and what we do with it matters. And it's not that we can't ever pray in a more relaxed position. I don't think that's what Lewis meant or that, that any of us would want to say. Hopefully we pray frequently enough that we're going to be in all kinds of different positions. But there's a, there's a reason for bowing down sometimes. There's a reason for raising your hands sometimes. Because our bodies, what we do with our bodies matters. We could look at a lot of scriptures about this, but I don't have the time to, to do that today. Just think about Jesus, the way uh, he was embodied, the way he prayed in different, different ways with his body. Uh, there are, are um, various things in the Old Testament you can look at, and I'm just going to uh, skip past that right now. But let me just say that, uh, just really as a, a side note today, um, part of this understanding relates to our corporate worship. You know, you can't gather to worship without your body. You have to bring it. <laughs> and uh, sometimes today people are going to online church. I think it's a huge mistake uh, to, to uh, move towards online church. For one thing, you cannot share the sacraments in online church. But our bodies actually communicate to each other. That's one of you know, body language. Let me tell you, I can read a lot in what Olivia says, even if she's not saying anything. <laughs> yes, yes, Sarah Paul. <laughs> but you know, um, uh, our bodies communicate to each other when we're together. We sing that song just a minute ago. I'm not the biggest hand raiser in, in songs. I don't do it all the time. Some people do, and I like to worship with people who do. But man, when we get to some, some parts like, Jesus' name is above all names. I almost feel like I need to bear witness to that. Just like, with my body, I want to say his name's above all names. And I'll get over even my hesitations to, to bear witness to things like that. Um, and uh, it, I know it, it, it impacts me when I, when I see others. I know Connie's not here today, but Connie's my favorite hand lifter in the church. I told, I told Drew this uh, oh, maybe six weeks ago. He said, yeah, it's like she's got a lasso up on that thing. <laughs> I hope I don't make. If she's watched this, I hope I don't make. I hope it don't make you feel self conscious, Connie. Please just keep doing what you're doing. You really are my favorite. Um, uh, I like the I like the rhythm to it, the power in it. Um, uh, but that, you know, it does speak to you when 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 people are around you. Don't do anything that that you're not comfortable with. But you might also feel free to experiment some too to see if God meets you or meets others through that. When I, when we're in a time of the Lord's Supper now, and I walk back and I see Sister Sherry back there with her head down and her hands up. It reminds me of what I'm doing right there and of the presence of the Lord among us because we're, we're, we're corporate beings. We're, we're embodied beings who have come together. Paul's done the same thing when I'm communing. I see him back there recognizing the moment for himself in his body. I recognize it as well. So I would just encourage you to, to uh, think about that with worship. At the very least, we need to be a judgment-free zone. Okay, uh, Years ago, as the dummy I was, I went to this uh, concert, a Christian concert at a church somewhere. And uh, up at the front of the building, there was one guy who was just like standing like this and stood so much. And afterwards, you know, I was in college, and there was a group of us college kids sitting around. And not the only time in my life that my brother Matt has um, helpfully rebuked me. But uh, as I was sitting around, I would say, you know, there's really 
there's really no reason for that guy doing that. He's just drawing attention to himself. And uh, Matt, sitting at the table, said, you don't have any idea what's in that guy's heart. I wish I had a counter-argument <laughs> with my brother, but, you know, I didn't. I didn't know what was in that guy's heart. It's not for me to worry about. Now, if somebody started doing backflips down the aisle or, you know, you want to go crazy with stuff, of course, the elders will step in and make sure it can be an edifying setting. <laughs> but in general, we, we just want to be a judgment-free zone with people engaging their bodies in worship um, because that's, a, that's an important part of us as physical creatures engaging in worship. That's, what, that's, that's how we come to the sacraments, knowing that our bodies matter. Uh, in the sacraments, God affirms the goodness of physical creation and his desire to meet us in our bodies. Have you ever thought about all the different ways he could have welcomed us into the body of Christ? He could have had us sign a contract. He could have had us just quietly say something to ourselves and then say we're in. But no, he says, I want to wash your whole body in water and welcome you into the body of Christ. It'd be like a new birth. All the ways he could have invited us to to uh, remember the gospel, the death and resurrection of Jesus. He could have had us write a love letter each week. He could have had us sit and meditate quietly. But he said, no, I want you to come and eat the body and drink the blood of Jesus. This is what God said. Have you ever noticed that Jesus, a lot of times when he heals people, he touches them? Or when he blesses them, he touches them? You know, he could have done it without doing that. He was powerful enough. He did it at times. Just speak the word and they'll be healed. We know he could. Could it be that Jesus understood the importance, though, of the physical in administering grace? And so instead of just saying be healed, he would reach out and say, be healed. Is it the case that maybe he's still reaching out today through the sacraments to extend his grace? Now, let me just say something about baptism right up front front here before we say any more about it. Uh, People have argued about baptism, had different views of baptism for a long time. We may have different uh, perspectives represented in here. I'd be happy to talk more with anybody about it who wants to discuss it further. I'm going to skip that first. Okay. Um, Ways that you will see people viewing baptism. One is as just a symbol. Um, In other words, it's an outward sign of an inward reality. And when you come to baptism, it's because you've already had things happen, and this is just to say it's happened. I want to say to you that that, I think, is pretty much an innovation in the history of the church. Nobody seemed to think that uh, before the Protestant Reformation. And it doesn't seem to be the scriptural view when you read it at face value. The, the scriptures, you know, people, the reason this has come about is people have anxiety about being saved by works. And they think we're going to say we're saved by works if we say baptism is anything more than a symbol. And the scriptures just don't seem to be worried like that. We'll look at some in just a minute. And the early church was not worried like this. And really, nobody was worried about it for 1,500 years until the Protestant Reformation. And then the idea that it's just a symbol. Even Martin Luther, you wrote what Luther said about baptism. And he has a much higher view of it than what trickled down from people who descended from him. Um, so uh, I just, man, we've got to give weight to that. Uh, and, I've, and let me just say personally, this is something I've really wrestled with. I've been educated by people who don't believe this. And uh, I could tell you, if I had more time, I could tell you stories about my own struggle and wrestle and what I've listened to other people say. But I've come down, I want to stand with uh, what the scriptures seem to say, what Athanasius and Augustine and John Chrysostom say on down through Martin Luther. Those are the people I'm more concerned about than uh, the more modern guys. Um, 
So there's another view, though, and this may be more the view some of you would be familiar with, and what gives a bad rap to people who sometimes say baptism is more than just a symbol, and that's that it's kind of a contract. And it's more like you take these steps, and God says, do this one, then do this one, then do this one, and then sign at the end, and then I'll give you what I'm going to give you. And you see, in, in both, both of these views, I think, go wrong, um, because on the one hand, you minimize baptism, on the other hand, you maximize yourself. Like, oh, look, I did it. You see? I did it right. I thought the right things about it. And now I'm accepted by God. This is, this is what happened to me. I was a kid. I was baptized. Y'all, this is legalism. This is embarrassing. But uh, I came up out of the water, and I thought a bad word. And in my legalism, I thought, you know, oh, no. I've, now, I, now I've sinned. <laughs> And uh, afterwards, I remember my aunt coming up to me, and uh, she said, Son, how does it feel not to have a sin in the world on you? <laughs> and I probably sinned again. I don't remember sure, but I probably lied to her. Like, oh, it's, it's great. It's great. Yeah. <laughs> now I've got two. <laughs> right. Because I had, I had fulfilled the contract, but then I had messed up on it. You know, that's the way I thought. That's just not it. Baptism is grace. Baptism is Christ coming to us. It's an encounter with the living Christ. That's the way the early church thought of baptism. Nobody thought to say, oh yeah, this is, this is earning your salvation. The apostle Paul, at one point, he, he compared it to the Exodus. He said all the Israelites were baptized when they crossed the Red Sea. Now can you, think of, can you imagine any of the Israelites crossing the Red Sea? Be like, I did that. God did his part, I did my part. And together, we did it. No. Yeah, they had a choice. They could have stayed and gotten killed. <laughs> but they walked across, and nobody in their right mind does that and says, well, I think I earned it. You know, I just uh, won't count that for myself there. No, that's just not baptism. Baptism is God's grace. It's him coming to us in our bodies and saying, I will touch you in your body with my grace. We spent so much time arguing about the meaning of baptism that I'm afraid we have failed to receive it as the great gift it was intended to be. Do you know what the Ethiopian eunuch said in Acts chapter 8 when Philip preached to him and they finally came to the water? Here is water. Do I have to be baptized? No, he didn't say that, did he? Here's water. Can I be baptized? Is this for me too? And you see, as an outsider to the people of Israel, he was a worshiper of the one God, but he wasn't allowed fully in. As a, as a eunuch, especially, he was viewed as unclean in some ways. He wasn't allowed fully into the temple worship. He was excluded. And it may be that he was just thinking, really, can I? Can I get in on this too? Philip said, yep. By faith in Jesus, your body can be washed now and fully accepted. May I say to you that the most important thing about your body is that it has been baptized. See, the most important thing about that eunuch when he was baptized was no longer that he was a eunuch 
or that he was an Ethiopian, that he was a, a non-Israelite. The most important thing about him became, I'm baptized. I'm a baptized believer in Jesus. But it's also important to note, he didn't say, well, since I'm already good, and since um, I have all this experience, and, and um, since everything's already done, I think I'll think about getting baptized one day as a symbol of my faith and salvation. He didn't say that. He's like, can I do this now? And that's the impression you get in the New Testament when you see people encountering the opportunity for baptism. Man, our, our bodies, there's so much false ideology about the body today in the world. And see, what we want to say is the, the definitive thing about our bodies is not that it's beautiful or young or old or ugly or healthy or sick. The definitive thing about our bodies is that it has been baptized. And Christ has come now to inhabit this body. The world needs to hear this. People need to hear this who are struggling with body image. You're too fat. You're too old. You're too ugly. None of that carries a bit of weight. You belong to Jesus. You put on Christ. Some churches, they have a font, uh, a baptismal font, water, when you walk in the building and people come by and they touch that water as a reminder of their own baptism. I think that's a beautiful thing because we're supposed to be living in this, coming back to it over and over again, coming back to our baptism. Today, when Silas is baptized, I hope everyone here will not just look at that and say, that's great for Silas, but you'll remember that you have been baptized. And if you haven't been, maybe it's time to consider it. So let me just say a few things more. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to keep this brief. I have a lot that I could say, and I'm just not going to get to it today. So this is, this is Galatians 3. In baptism, we're already touching on this one, okay? So we're, in baptism, there's three things I'm going to say. Baptism, you're given a new identity. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God. And just imagine being told we can put on Christ. And I believe that's a real thing. It's like a life that comes into us that we live into. Imagine being told, if you're a basketball player and you love playing basketball, imagine being told that you could put on Michael Jordan. And that really, in some ways, his character as a basketball player would inhabit you. And over time, as you worked it out, as you sought him, as you sought his ways, you would learn his moves and his skills and his uh, power. Well, that is actually what's being told to us about Christ. We put on Christ. It's planted in us and it grows in us over time. So important to see this. See, our primary identity now is Christ. 
nothing else in baptism. Silas today is no longer a Whitworth, primarily. I was wanting Daniel to be in here because I was going to tell him there's no more shame. (laughs) See, your primary identity now is in Christ. Silas today is royalty. He is a prince. He's a child of Jesus. In your baptism, you're no longer primarily black or white or Hispanic or Asian. You're no longer primarily Republican or Democrat. It's not that these things don't exist or they aren't a part of you. It's just not your primary identity. What our divided world right now needs so badly from Christians is for Christians to realize that their baptismal identity is so much more important than their voter registration identity. We are one in Christ. You're no longer primarily heterosexual or homosexual. Now let me, let me explain what I mean by that. I mean, this is just... I probably should have never said it because now I've got to explain for a minute. <laughs> I'm trying to finish up quickly. One of the things you find a lot of times in uh, uh, discussions about sexuality is that people bring up identity. And I've had this happen with me. We had a a liberal northeastern family come down and join our rural Kentucky church. And as we were going through a membership process with them, we had a long discussion about homosexuality. And and they said, what, what the lady kept saying was, but that's who they are. And finally, I asked her, what do you think makes a person who they are? And she stopped and said, that's a good question. You see, this is the question. We need to operate with a lot of sensitivity here. We don't need to say ignorant things like, oh, it's just a choice. Or you could just get over it if you wanted to. All the hurtful things the church has said about the issue of homosexuality, we don't need to go there. But at the same time, we can't reject Christian morality as it stood in Scripture and history for generations now. And what we need to say is there's something more important about you and your primary identity than your sexuality. And the reason you don't live out a homosexual lifestyle is because you're one spirit with the Lord Jesus. And that's the most important thing about you. That's who you are. You're not primarily a homosexual. You're not primarily a heterosexual. You're primarily the Lord Jesus. Well, I've got I've to quit here. Um, we're given a new community. Man, it's so important to realize that we are placed together in a body. Somebody said it takes a village to raise a Christian. And that's right, we need to be in community. And part of community, the last part is unity. You see, what we can say is when we're baptized, we are united. So we don't have to divide over all kinds of little things that people divide over. We don't have to rebaptize everybody who comes through our doors, by the way. And when we do that, when we act like nobody's baptism counted unless we did it and they understood it just right, we actually undermine what Paul said in Ephesians 4 when he said there's one baptism. And God does that one. 
And we don't seek to undo it or to redo it or to make it perfect. And actually, because I have such a high view of baptism, I really hate this practice that I've seen in churches of Christ where people always rebaptize the people uh, who have been baptized in good faith and repentance and dedication to Christ long before. It is because baptism is so important, it's because God is operative in it, that we don't say, well, we, we better redo that. I'm rushing through things that I could say for a longer time. Last one, um, we're given a new life. Look at just verse 3. Man, we could just spend a whole sermon on this passage. But do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? The life. The life of self, self-guided, self-directed life. And the only way out of that is through an act of God. That's what Paul came to understand. The body, the human body is dominated by patterns of thought and feeling, emotion and behavior that are incurable outside of the action of God. And yet, he believed that grace could reach even there. And we could know what it means to die with Christ. Nobody thought anybody could die and be raised, especially not die by crucifixion and be raised. And yet that's what they found, and then it dominated the rest of Christian history. It dominates the New Testament then. If Christ died, we can be connected to that death. And if he lives again, we can be connected to that life. That's what Romans 6 is saying. Just as Christ was raised, did that happen? It still is happening. In the life of believers. We're united with him. You know, we talked about right at the beginning of this sermon. Union with Christ. We're united with Christ. Somehow, it's mystery. And sometimes we struggle to embrace things that are mysterious. But we've got to get over that if we want to be Christians who accept the New Testament. There's all kinds of mystery there. And in some way, the life of Christ has taken up residence in us. Does it happen automatically where everything's changed? Not, not always. Sometimes. Sometimes people experience dramatic, immediate change. Sometimes it's, it's different. But, but here's the thing. It's no longer an alien life separate from us out there. It's, a, it's the seed of God that has been planted in us that unfolds in a life of discipleship. Like one scholar says... Uh, it's like we're grafted into the Christ tree. And then as we grow, we are molded and shaped into the image of Christ. In baptism, we find a new life. And so we say with Paul, our old self was crucified. Okay, I'm going to stop there. Let me say this. We're about to receive a beautiful moment when we listen to Silas confess the Lord Jesus before us and watch him baptized. And we're reminded of what's true for us. And then Silas is going to come join us at this table. The death and resurrection of Christ. The death and resurrection of Christ. And we come here week after week as those who have died and risen with Christ. And sometimes we come and we're celebrating new life. Sometimes we come to this table because death has come too close to home. And we throw ourselves at the feet of Jesus. And he says, I know all about it. Here's my body. Here's my blood. And we realize that the resurrection life of Christ 
is moving among us here in the church. And we'll close in prayer, and then we'll turn it over to Daniel with, with Silas. Thank you, Lord, for leaving us with tangible expressions of your grace. Thank you for your body and your blood, for your resurrection power. Thank you for Silas, that you have chosen to draw him to yourself. Bless us all here today with a sense of your living reality, Lord. We ask it in your name. Amen.